Hi, I'm Matt Kirkegaard, and thanks to Cryo Malt, this is Beer is a Conversation. Well, strap yourselves in this week, you're in for a ride. I was lucky enough to have the chance to chat with Pink Boots founder Terry Farendorf recently at BrewCon. I knew of Terry's background as a brewer of considerable experience and as founder of Pink Boots, but when we started chatting, I had no idea that it would prove impossible to have a short conversation with her. At the same time, the conversation was so engaging and interesting, and Terry had nowhere else that she had to be, that I didn't want to bring the conversation to a close prematurely, and we ended up chatting for almost two hours. Fortunately, the chat broke into three neat sections, dealing with Terry's background and career, Pink Boots and how that came to be, and then Terry's current position as the first Malt Innovation Centre Manager for Great Western Malting Company in Vancouver, Washington. Although the conversation goes for over two hours, this is a podcast, so we've been able to chop it up into those three sections and put them out as one podcast that you can listen to at your leisure. I hope you'll enjoy this extended conversation with Terry Farendorf as much as I did. Terry Farendorf, welcome to Beer is a Conversation. Thank you. With somebody who I have, whose career I've followed for a long, long time, I'm never quite sure how much of an introduction to, to give, but you are something of a, a legend in the industry because uh, most people would know you as founder of the Pink Boots Society. Um, That's in, my latest claim to fame, yeah. <laughs> but you're no stranger to be. You've been, you're celebrating your 30th year in the, uh, in the brewing industry. I am. So we might uh, deal with this a little bit chronologically and go back to how you got started in the brewing industry, where you get started, and what saw you uh, come to be part of this wonderful industry that we're all in. Okay. Well, uh, I was a computer programmer in the mid-1980s, and I didn't really like cubicle life. And my hobby was homebrewing. So after three years of homebrewing and saving up enough money to buy suits that you needed to wear to work back in the mid-80s. I had a little bit of spare change, so I decided to attend the American Homebrewers Association's National Homebrew Con, which was in Denver. And by chance at that time, the Great American Beer Festival was also going on that weekend. And so I did that. And that was the weekend that I decided to go pro in brewing. And I can tell you about that if you want. <laughs> no, what got you into home brewing? Because it was, was it Jimmy Carter who legalized home brewing? Yes, Jimmy Carter legalized home brewing in 1978. Had you been brewing illicitly before that? or No, no, I, I hadn't been. Um, although when I was a kid, you know, my parents are very experimental when it comes to food and we um we made homemade pickles we made homemade root beer which is a type of soda that americans are very fond of but australians might find pretty medicinal (laughs) (laughs) and um and so so i was no stranger to like messing around with foods and and things like that um and when i was young i was really fascinated by yeast i don't know why but i really loved yeast and i when I was 10 years old, I made my first loaf of bread, and nobody in my family had ever made bread. And my parents were off at an antique auction, and they said, uh, you have to wait till we come home to bake it, because I was too young to use the oven. 
Uh, when I was about nine years old, I remember going to a church rummage sale, or I don't know what you guys call them here, garage sale. Garage sale. Yeah, a church garage sale. And there was a little booklet. I think it was put out by Miller Brewing Company probably. There's a little booklet for 10 cents, and it was how beer is made. And I bought it, and I was so excited because I wanted to know how beer was made because I grew up in a German-American family. And so we did have beer with meals maybe about once a month something like that but we did have beer with meals as children as on a regular basis um, my parents really felt that it's good not to make beer and and adult beverages beverages mysterious they wanted us to feel that that was a part of our culture so i brought home this little blue booklet how beer is made and i opened it up and i'm so excited and i'm reading it and it says you have to have giant machines like giant mash presses and giant packaging you know filters and and i i thought oh my gosh you you can't brew beer unless you have a factory beer is made in a factory and and so i was very very disappointed to learn that because i thought i i mean i when we were children, there was no internet just to go and search around for things. So we'd go to the library and we would just look at look at encyclopedias when you're bored because you're just there. You're supposed to be studying. And I remember the reading old world about book encyclopedia. Yeah, and I remember reading about vinegar and I'd look up things and and then I remember being at, at university and I had a roommate who was a journalist and sometimes to get ideas she would just look in the yellow pages. So, if, you know, we didn't have television when I was at university. So one hand board, I'm just looking through the yellow pages. And it's like, oh, beer and winemaking. And so that's when I became a home winemaker, which I was before I was a home brewer. I was actually still at university. And, and I was legal. Drinking age was 18 at the time. And there's like, oh, my gosh, a home beer and winemaking store. But um wine was more what people were making back then and so I, I went and I bought some it was actually Australian Gewurztraminer grape concentrate <laughs> <laughs> and I made this white wine and I gave it to my professors for Christmas in little bottles with hand decorated labels for a Christmas present and they said that they thought it was great um, so that was how I started kind of home fermenting beyond the bread thing I started with wine and so then, several years later, when I graduated from university, I ended up getting a job on the West Coast in the San Francisco region, and that's very close to Napa Valley and the Sonoma Valley that are famous for wine. So the wines were very inexpensive, and I thought, well, there's no sense making wine because these wines are great and they're really cheap. So, so, so I went to the home brew and wine shop, and it's like, look, you can make beer too. So that's when I started making home-brewed beer. The thing that I find interesting about the, the the book that you picked up is that it was a Miller brewery saying that you need a big factory to, to make beer, and now they're frantically trying to tell you um, that they're, they're spending millions of dollars trying to educate people that beer is an agricultural product and that it's small and that it's local, and they're trying to undo all of those things that they created the perception uh, about beer in the first place. Yeah, I think back in the 1950s and 60s, the post-World War II era, um, people's parents had grown up on farms and, and they had, you know, wood stoves that they cooked in. And so I think this whole mystique about cleanliness and, you know, the science fiction of going to the moon and all the kinds of grade B movies that they had going on, there was this real sense of the future, Sputnik and everything. And I think that 
trying to show that your beer was untouched by human hands was considered that it was really clean and it wasn't like you had a dirt floor in the in the house anymore you know we've got vinyl and linoleum now over that dirt floor so so it was like we had to go to this really sterile hands-off place to really appreciate homemade again and then the 70s were about recovering you know the back to the land one of the first back to the land movements like no our our mothers were you know dressed up like the mad men wives with their poofy skirts and their their valium and their cigarettes or something and now we're going to go be hippies and we're going to get close to the land and then people became more interested in organics and you know farm fresh produce and things like that but i really think that the post world war 2 era up until about the 1960s people were trying to get away from the land because that was all about hard work and dirt and that was what my parents and my grandparents did but i'm modern and i'm going to be on i'm going to you know we're going to go to the mars after sputnik you know and the whole rocket spaceship program and and we're going to colonize mars or something and that brings in two really interesting elements of beer and culture that fascinate me is that beer styles and beer types aren't separate from their, their time and place and so the the industrial lagers that people love to hate at the moment mm-hmm. were obviously it wasn't just a couple of big breweries forcing a type of beer down people's throats they grew to become big concerns because they were making the beer that people wanted to drink for some of the reasons you identified right and i'm and i'm wondering if you know some of the regional differences might might have made people feel like they didn't want to be a hick what we call a hick or a bogan or whatever you guys call uh, you, you have picked up the Australian uh, <laughs> vernacular so well. A couple so of well. words. <laughs> and so uh, they're like, so to show their sophistication, they wanted the urban kind of beer, and that would mean this mass-produced beer. And so there was a whole blandification of everything going on. Instead of having the Victorian architecture like you guys have here with all the wrought iron, which is, is very detailed and probably... Those few little pockets that still survive. Oh, I know and I love those and so but they're very reminiscent in a way of like foliage uh, trees hanging down with all their their details but now I mean now we've got a little bit of that sterilization going on I mean look what Apple has done to design everything is like black and white and clean lines and that's what they that was their aesthetic in that post-world war ii era as well with those super clean lines in the kitchens you know, got white countertops and white cupboards and white floors. And it was much better than, than Ma's, you know, wooden stove and the soot on the ceiling and the dirt floor and, and the, uh, you know, the log cabin and the chinks that would fall out and the wind would come through. I mean, they, had, they put a wallpaper over all that stuff. They didn't want to see that, that old natural stuff. I, I'm not sure whether to keep going because this is fascinating. But I want—I'm actually wanting to bring it back to uh, to talking about you. Um, <laughs> we're, we're, okay. We're, we're talking about uh, stuff that I, that I find we're fascinating. We're going to segue a lot here. We're, we, uh, we're disappearing down the rabbit hole. We call it on this show. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so so you, so you found yourself at the Great American Beer Festival and the the, the Brewers Conference and decided that you wanted to go pro. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did you go? Uh, you know, back in the uh, '80s. Um, putting out applications and saying, I want to be a brewer. How did you make that next step? 
when I was at the Great American Beer Festival and attending that homebrewers conference in I guess how many how many stalls were there? How many tables were there at the nineteen eighty eight Great American Beer Festival? Was it still held in a small room? Oh, it a- was small. And in fact the judging included um, runners who had to run and get pitches of beer off the draft uh, beer lines. Now everybody has to package up in bottles. There's too many beers. You can't run the draft. So, um, but while I was there, I met I met some people who had gone pro, and that fascinated me. Um, I mean, I met famous people like Charlie Papazian and Fred Eckhart and some of the folks like that that had been around a long time, um, and had, you know, Charlie Papazian. He's famous, absolutely. But um, but I met some people who had. Um, attended a school I hadn't heard of called the Siebel Institute in Chicago, and I talked to them. So I met John Meyer, who um, uh, just retired from being the brewmaster at Rogue Brewing in Newport, Oregon. At the time, he was the brewmaster up at Alaskan Brewing Company in Juneau, and I was talking to him, and he said that he had been a senior aircraft technician at Hughes Aircraft, or senior aircraft engineer at Hughes Aircraft in Los Angeles, and I thought, wow, if he can make the switch from high tech, because I was a computer programmer, over to brewing and survive financially, I can too. And then there was a woman named Melly Pullman, who um, a lot of people forgot about in the States for many years, but she's back in the beer industry. Um, she was the first woman craft beer brewmaster in the modern era. And I saw her get up on stage and win a medal at the GABF that year. Now, this is how small the... Great American Beer Festival was that year. Every single winner got up on stage at the same time and took a group photo. <laughs> you don't see that anymore. And there was only about 20 of them, you know? And so, um, and I thought, wow, she's about my size. And she's literally about my size. And I thought, if she can do the job physically, so can I. So meeting some of these people made me start thinking about, wow, I could do this. I could attend a brewing school. Um, and the re- I was in a homebrew club called the San Andreas Maltz. If you went to Dick Cantwell's talk yesterday, he mentioned the San Andreas Maltz. And about 12 of us all went pro at about the same time. I was the only woman in that group. I think it was the only woman club member at the time, actually. Uh, I was the only woman club member who went pro about that time. The fellows who went pro out of the San Andreas Maltz did not go and get any professional training, formal training in brewing. But I also knew that being five foot five and 120 pounds at that time, that um, that that owners would take one look at me and say, "No, you're too small. You're not strong enough. I can hire my bodybuilder nephew Louis, and he's going to come and he can lift all those bags of grain." And so I need, I decided I need to use my brain instead of my brawn. Uh, at least to get my foot in the door. So I did attend Siebel. I was about the third or fourth craft brewer to attend the Siebel Institute in Chicago. Um, and I was the first woman class president. I mean, I've had a lot of firsts in my career. It's really been lovely. Um, uh, tons of opportunities. Um, it's just because I rally people. You know, I'm, I'm a group person. I started Pink Boot Society, like you said, and I got to Siebel. And I'm, I'm talking... To, it's so funny. The, the first night before we started the class, they had a, um, a little get-together so that we, the students could all get to know each other. And there are 24 students in the class. One other woman besides myself, she worked at Stroh's. I was the only home brewer attending. The rest of them came from big breweries. 
And so they were, we were all going around talking to each other, and their question was, what brand do you brew? What brand do you brew? And I go, I don't brew brands. I brew styles. And they said, what's a style? <laughs> These were brewers at, at breweries from all over the world, and they had no idea what a style of beer was because at the time there was only one style of beer, and that was fizzy yellow beer. And so I thought, oh, my gosh, I'm going to have to educate the, my, all my, my classmates. So I, have you ever heard of, at the time they were called microbreweries, have you ever heard of a microbrewery? They're like, what's that? So I organized all these class trips, and, I, and, and none of them had really had hands-on brewing, like on like a homebrew type scale. So I said to the instructors, can we do like a five-gallon batch of class brew? They're like, yeah, sure. Okay, who wants to be on my team? We're going to do this. What kind of beer do you guys want to make? Like, I don't know, you know, beer, whatever. And I said, uh, and I said, well, I've always made ales because I can't control my fermentation temperature when I was a home brewer. So I said, let's do a lager. They're like, yeah, whatever. I mean, they really hardly knew the difference. And I said, um, what about a double bock? And they're like, yeah, sure. And I thought, they don't know what it even is. So I said, I'll bring some in. So I brought them in. And one guy who was from southern Illinois said, that tastes like goat piss. And I said, first of all, it does not. And how do you know what goat piss tastes like anyway? And I said, well, that's that one's not going to fly. So I decided let's do an Oktoberfest Meritzen style. So that's what we did for our class brew. And so just because I was organizing, you know, carpooling to go visit all the microbreweries in Chicago at the time, the two Canadians said, we're going to vote you in as president. I don't have to be president. You guys be president. I don't need that ego trip. I said, I'll be vice president. They said, no, you're doing all the organizing. We're going to, you're going to be president. Okay. So they voted me class president because I was already organizing everything. That's what I do. So how long was the Siebel course that you did? Uh, 12 weeks. 12 weeks. Mm -hmm. And so, so you got through your class president. You, you, you got through, you graduated, obviously. Mm -hmm. How did you go about uh, taking your first step into professional brewing? I was living in the San Francisco Bay Area at the time, and I, I really didn't want to go back into computer programming, but I knew I could if I needed to. So what was the, what was the San, San Francisco, that you had Anchor uh, Brewing at that stage? Was oh, it... there, there were big breweries, and, and I, I applied. I mean, basically what I did is I printed off a whole bunch of resumes, and, um, and I, I really w wanted to live in Oregon. I just had this thing that I want. Ever since I learned about the Oregon Trail as a little kid, I feel like I was drawn to live in Oregon. And I lived there and have lived there for a long time now. Um, and I love the nature of Oregon and everything else. So I printed off a whole bunch of resumes. And I got in my car and packed all my stuff into a suitcase and my, my pet cockatiel. <laughs> and I started driving up up to Portland, um, I had a coworker that I could stay with. And along the way, I stopped in every homebrew shop and every brewery and I gave them my resume. And they all said, well, we're not hiring. Uh, and the homebrew shops, I said, if you hear of any new breweries opening, because I figure if, if they don't know of any local homebrewers, they're gonna, you know, the new brewery owners will go to a homebrew shop. And I've hired people that way. I go to the homebrew shop and I said, Which, what local homebrewers do you know that might want to go pro? So I dropped off resumes at homebrew shops, every brewery, and, and the breweries would say, well, we're not hiring. This was January of 1989. And I said, oh, that's okay. If you hear of anybody that's opening or needs a brewer, just pass my resume on. Well, I was up in Portland about two months, and I called all the breweries, and I asked for informational interviews, which is something um, we do in the United States. Sometimes you just ask, just 
try to meet with the top person and say, well, what are you looking for in a brewer? You know, because you just want to know what they want. And so uh, after a couple of months, I got a phone call from this brewery in Berkeley, California called Golden Gate Brewing Company. And they said, you come really highly recommended. We got two of your resumes. <laughs> so I was like, yes. Okay, so um, so I came down. Um, I flew down for an interview. And they were a brewery that had been open for about eight months and gone bankrupt. And some new people had taken over for them. And they said, wow, you have professional training and nobody had professional training back then and so they hired me so that was my first brewing job and how long were you with them for i was there for two months until they went out of business <laughs> again okay <laughs> a new ownership went out of business yeah two months later yeah so where to from there from there well i was badly injured there um which we don't have to go into that unless you want to, but I was badly injured through um, lack of training. They promised me that I'd be trained. I wasn't, and bad advice by that tank manufacturer. At any rate, I ended up in the hospital with third-degree burns, and um, uh, it was a mess. And, um, and, and I'm in the hospital, and I have to actually have this little heart-to-heart -heart chat with myself. Hmm, Terry, this is a really dangerous job. Are you sure you want to be a brewer? And my answer to myself was, I have not achieved what I set out to do yet, so I will stay. I will stick with this. But I had it was a serious little talk with myself. So from the hospital, um, there were no cell phones. This was back in 1989. I borrowed a phone calling card from uh, my boss until he, he that ran out of money, and I'm basically uh, calling around, seeing if anybody needs a brewer. And um, I was able to get a job from my hospital bed at Triple Rock Brewing Company. And so as soon as I got out, they basically said, how soon can you start? So I said to the doctor, how soon could I start? And he said, July 1st. And I'm like thinking, oh, my God, I just had all these skin grafts. 11% of my body was burned. And I'm like, I don't even know how to walk. I go, I better learn to walk again and run fast. So um, I was really motivated because uh, we decided I would start whatever that Monday was, July 3rd or something. But I had no hair because the skin grafts came off my scalp. Wow. And were put on my foot and leg. And so I looked funny. I had to wear a hat. I walked with crutches. My mother flew out so that she could... I lived, I had guy roommates. They weren't They weren't sweethearts. They were just guy roommates. And they were bodybuilders. And they, I mean, if they were in charge of helping me, I would have starved. So my mother had to come out and help me because I couldn't stand. I couldn't stand, much less walk at first. I had, to, I had to learn quickly. So it was only two months from the day I was injured until I started that new job. And I had a lot to recover from in between there. And, and you started and how did that job go? That went well. I was there for a year and a quarter, but I could never afford to live in Berkeley, California on a brewer's salary. And it wasn't Oregon where I wanted to end up. Let me back up for a second. Be just before I left for the Siebel Institute to, do, to attend brewing school, I opened up American Brewer magazine that Bill Owens published at the time. And I saw, wow, there's going to be this thing called the Oregon Brewers Festival in Portland. And I want to move to Oregon. So I, I like, have to go to this beer festival. So I drove up to the beer festival. And, and I went there before they opened. And I went around and I was talking to all the brewers saying, hey, I'm going to be attending the Siebel Institute. And when I get out, I'm going to be looking for a job up here. And they all said, go talk to Fred. Go talk to Fred. Well, Fred Bowman, the only reason why I need to talk to Fred is because 
he had attended Siebel and they were trying to get rid of me maybe I don't know but at any rate <laughs> I talked to Fred he goes I don't have any openings I said that's fine I'll come and ask you later and so later when I was in Portland for that two months I went and asked all of them but um, that that was the first Oregon Brewers Festival in 1988 and that is still going on the last full weekend in July every year and I think it's the world's biggest well not the world's biggest I guess but certainly America's biggest um, outdoor beer festival and everything the second Oregon Brewers Festival was just after I started work at Triple Rock but the third one I attended and I was up there and um, my bosses were up there from Triple Rock and my assistant brewers were up there we were all up there and there was a man walking around with a t-shirt that said Brewer Wanted Eugene Oregon and I wanted to talk to that guy. So I had to wait till my owners were not looking and my <laughs> assistant brewers were not looking. And I just went up to the guy and I gave him my business card. And I said, if you're looking for an experienced brewer, I've also attended brewing school. Here's my card. So how experienced were you at this stage? How long had you been brewing? I had been brewing professionally for about a year and a okay. half. And I had attended the Siebel's too. But that was more than anyone else. Yeah. I mean, back then you could almost get a brewing job if you had a pulse and you were a home <laughs> brewer. And, and in fact, it wasn't cool at all. I started brewing way before it was cool. You know, my some of my girlfriends were accountants or whatever. And they're like, why do you want to be a brewer? It's such a dirty, messy job. You know, and obviously it's dangerous. You got hurt. What are you doing? You're crazy. I'm like, I want to do this. So I did. So at any rate, uh, so that guy called me later that week from um, what was going to be called Steelhead Brewing Company in Eugene, Oregon. And uh, he didn't really have his interview questions organized, but I had some interview questions for him having gone through a brewery that went bankrupt and bounced two out of my four paychecks and stuff. So I had a lot of questions for him. And basically, um, you know, he hired, he hired me over the phone. And so then I left... Triple Rock. I would have stayed if I could have afforded myself, but I, I had a dream that I wanted to buy a house one day. So I moved to Eugene, Oregon to become the brewmaster at Steelhead Brewing Company, and that was in uh, uh, August of 1989, and I started September 17th, and um, we opened to the public uh, January 21st of 1991, and I had all the tanks full. And, um, and I stayed there for 17 years and built five locations for Steelhead. And I, Steelhead was not a huge brewery, but I put it on the worldwide map. <laughs> I did. Now, one of the things we haven't talked about, we, we, we've talked about the, just the, the, the applications and the process of uh, getting jobs. How much resistance did you come up against being a female uh, in, in an industry that you know, even now is significantly male-dominated, uh, but back then it would have been completely male-dominated. It is. And I'm an optimist, and if somebody doesn't want to hire me, that's their loss. So my attitude is, okay, you don't want me? I'm going to go work for your competitor. I'm going to be amazing, and I'm going to make you damn jealous you didn't hire me. And that's what I tell the women who, some of them complain to me that they can't find a job or somebody won't hire them. And I'm like, go work for somebody else then. So... Some of the comments I heard were kind of interesting when I was applying. And what's funny is all these guys are my friends now. And they don't remember these conversations. <laughs> and they would be mortified to be reminded of what they said to me before they knew me. But I got comments like, um, um, can you carry a full half barrel of beer up a flight of steps? Uh, no. 
but there are ways to get it up the steps. And so I would get a hand truck or I would get a ramp, you know, get some boards and make a ramp and get a winch up at the top. Um, can you lift this bag of grain over your head to put it into the mill? No, but I would get some cinder blocks and some boards and make some steps. And I could certainly pour half of that bag into a five gallon bucket and make two trips. Um, women can do anything men can do. They just do it differently. So the question is not, can you get a full half barrel? Can you carry a full half barrel up a flight of steps? The question is, this half barrel is the bottom of the steps. It needs to get to the top. How would you do it? Women are very, very clever. They can do it. They will figure out a way. There is this bag of grain. It's right here on the ground. The top of the mill is here above your head. How would you get that grain into that mill? The right questions are asked. You will get the safest answers. Any brewery that is truly a safe brewery, that an older brewer with bad knees and a bad back who's over 50 years old, any old guy brewer, shall we say, and... Uh, I'm in that age range, and I don't have busted knees and backs, but a lot of guys early on were, were not doing the clever thing. They were doing the manly thing, and they were lifting all of those things, and they hurt themselves over time. But any brewery that is safe enough for an older brewer with some body aches and pains to brew in is a brewery that a woman can brew in easily. It, it's interesting you say that because one of the things that I, I look at is I hear the questions you were being asked as being can you do it the way that we've always done it right as opposed to can you do it as a woman um and, and there's, there's a slight difference and it, it's coming from men who have always done things a certain way right they're just used to you know muscling up but seriously if if you were to ask someone what is the very safest way to do that job and, and a woman would be a, per, a good person to ask that that question of because they're not going to muscle up in the same way a guy would. So if you ask, what is the safest way to do each job in a brewery? You have a brewery that a woman can easily brew in or any older brewer who's older than 50 or 60 who has achy body parts. And I, that's the safe brewery. That's the brewery everybody should be striving for. And, and that's, I, I guess, where I was going with that is I find it very interesting. You talked about a lot of these older male brewers now have aching shoulders and aching backs because they've always done it the worst way, but right. the way that it's always been done. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe that's the question that they should have been asking. Why have we got sore backs? Not why, you know, how can you do it? Yeah. Yeah. You should always ask anybody with a job. This is where we are now. This is what needs to happen. How would you do that? And, and that's a great way to, to like learn how people's thought processes work as well. Those are great interview questions. But I was being asked, this is how we do it. Can you do it our way? But it's not necessary to do it that way. And in fact, it's detrimental to everyone's health to do it that way. Don't forget, if you like what we do at Radio Brews News, you can help us out in a number of ways. You can sponsor the show either by a small monthly contribution or through a one-off donation. You can find details in the show notes. You can review our podcast on iTunes or your favourite podcasting service. Let us know what you think and help others discover the show. Finally, you can tell us directly what you think by sending an email to producer at bruisenews.com.au. All letters received will receive a Bruise News bottle opener. And thanks to our good friends at Beer Cartel, the letter of the week will receive a mixed six-pack 
of Australian craft beer. When Brews News cast and crew are buying online, we buy at Beer Cartel. We love hearing your thoughts on the stories we cover because beer is a conversation. And we look forward to another conversation next week. Mm-hmm.